Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. This is Islam for Christians, episode 55, Islamic History, circa 621, The Night Journey and the Ascension. Long ago, before electric light, before clocks, before work schedules and commutes and coffee, human beings viewed the night very, very differently than we do now. Of course, that's obvious, so why bother pointing that out? Because I don't mean that humans just saw the night differently. I mean, they did, at least in the literal sense of what the eye is seeing. Everything was just literally darker then. But centuries before us, nighttime had a different social and a spiritual essence that was simply not like our time. It was different. You know, it even had a biology that was different. In the old days, few people just went to bed with the goal of waking up eight hours later, like most of us do, like I do. Most probably didn't even know what an hour was. The human sleep pattern was generally dual phase, meaning you slept for a while, you got up for an hour or two, and then you went back to bed for a second sleep. And the time between those two sleeps was a time for socializing, or contemplating, for philosophizing, for doing the kind of luxurious things humans do when the affairs of worldly life are just not beating them over the head. This is when they lived the examined life, a chance to think about things that truly, truly matter, and to look at, perhaps, a higher reality. One word for that time between the two sleeps was the God Hour. And it had this name not because it was a dedicated time for liturgy or prayer or anything organized from the outside. This was not the God hour of church on Sunday, for example, or Friday prayers at the mosque. This was the God hour of the individual soul, and it was the time when the human body was most attuned, the most sensitive to higher perceptions. Now, I'm guessing many of you have experienced this, even in modern times. We don't get to do it nearly as often as we used to. And I assume rural people probably experience this with greater frequency than urban people. But just think for a second. Think about all those special times you've experienced at night. It doesn't even need to be something specifically spiritual. Just a feeling of power. A feeling that there is something much larger surrounding you. Than you, you know, something that you had been blind to during the day, but you saw now, or maybe more accurately, you felt it now. How many times have you woken up at 3 a.m. and had a profound, maybe even life altering experience? Certainly more often than you have experienced the same thing at 3 p.m., for sure, because the night is special. And for the ancients, it was extremely special. Nighttime is when you were most likely to see God, really. And it was precisely in this state, at this special time, that brings us to Muhammad's night journey. You know, the story is partially about the spiritual quality of the night. 
the American musician Billy Joel wrote a whole song about this phenomenon a long time ago, and it was appropriately called In the Middle of the Night. Well, it was about the qualities of the night, you know, not Muhammad's actual experience. I doubt he knows much about Muhammad. But the point is, that song is about the thoughts of someone during the God Hour, what he called walking in my sleep. It was more about thoughts and dreams than physical interaction with the night. But on that note, I really highly recommend walking at night if you can, if you've never done this, as long as it's safe to do so. Just everything is different at night. And you walk the streets without distraction, without seeing anyone usually, without greeting anyone, or thinking at all about how anyone's perceiving you. A night stroll is just a breeding ground for epiphanies. And I can't recommend that enough. Again, only if it's safe to do so. But, you know, even if it's not, some may decide that the rewards are worth the risks. In my younger years, I probably took many chances I should not have. That may not have been wise. You know, there are many places that just seemed safer to me than to normal people. And I wasn't the only one. This, of course, didn't always end well for everyone. Uh, in college, in this same neighborhood where I used to walk, a friend of mine actually got shot. It happens. You know, but even if it's dangerous, a 2 a.m. stroll through your neighborhood, if you've never done it, is a unique experience. I, I do this often, and I've been stopped by the police plenty of times, actually. And in fairness to them, I should be. You know, few people are wandering around at 2 a.m. with positive intentions. I get that. But I'm a strange guy. They don't know that. But I do wander at night with positive intentions. And I have racked up some amazing experiences. And as we'll see, Muhammad wandered at night. And he may have had the greatest night experience in the history of the world. The night journey is the story of that experience that he would tell the next day. Even in a modern urban environment, the night quality is still there because at night you will feel an unusual silence and a stillness. You'll feel the cleanliness of the air. You'll hear the sounds that are usually drowned out by city noise. Even the peaceful cadence of an idling freight train can be beautiful and profound, especially when it's filling a crisp, otherwise silent winter night. At night, you can hear the rivers. Even great rivers like the Mississippi can be silenced by a small city like St. Louis, but that's in the day. At night, the Mississippi has this hypnotic quality. It draws your eyes, almost calling you in. Chicago's Lake Michigan has the same quality at night. If you have any powerful natural force near you, just make sure you see it at night. So even in an urban environment, which incidentally is where Muhammad found himself, you can make the most out of the nighttime environment. For me, you know, this was the American Midwest. Uh, the streets and industrial parks of Chicago's South Side the lesser-known parts of the Chicago River, you know, these places with such long memories that they are literally bubbling with the decaying flesh 
of animals from a hundred years ago. There's the Civil War graveyards in Springfield, particularly near Lincoln's tomb. There's the Mississippi River, the great valleys of the Ohio and Wabash rivers, and those little spots of nature that only you know about. For as boring as those places may seem to some, particularly compared to the great places in the long history of the old world, they all have something to say at night, and they change a person at night and enhance the spiritual perception of a person at night. So just imagine what I could have gotten from all these walks if I happened to live next to a place of spiritual pilgrimage, a place that later would be considered the nexus of the universe for an entire religion. Muhammad had that in the Kaaba, and all he had to do was get up and take a short walk there. I mean, really, it would have been weird if he didn't have some profound night experience at some point. And about 10 years into his ministry, he had the most profound vision since his first encounter with Gabriel in the cave of Hera. So let's just set up the situation before Muhammad wandered into the Meccan night during his own personal God hour to set up the story of the night journey. Muhammad was at a low point following the year of sorrow. You'll see previous episodes for that. He was back in Mecca under the unlikely protection of a clan that was not even his own. So he was free to wander Mecca at night to wake up after his first round of sleep, wander over to the Kaaba, and then to fall asleep there for his second round of sleep. And it was during this second round of sleep, during or after the so-called God hour, that Muhammad experienced the night journey. Now, in reality, what you think actually happened is entirely up to you. Muhammad is the only source for this account, so it's not like there are conflicting stories here. There is Muhammad's story or no story at all. Well, at least from a certain point of view. The night journey was also mentioned in the Quran, so from a Muslim perspective, God is actually corroborating the story. Um, here's Surah 17, the first verse. This is uh, Mustafa Kitab. Glory be to the one who took his servant Muhammad by night from the sacred mosque to the farthest mosque, whose surroundings we have blessed, so that we may show him some of our signs. Indeed, he alone is the all-hearing, all-seeing. The mainline Muslim belief is that this was a genuine physical journey from Mecca to Jerusalem, and from there into the heavens. And we'll get into all that. And this is probably a good time to mention that the two parts of what is usually just referred to as the night journey here, that there are two parts of this. First, there is the night journey, where Muhammad travels from Mecca to Jerusalem. The return trip to Mecca in the same night is usually included in this. It's kind of the same miracle, regardless of the direction it's going. In Arabic, this is called El Esra. Actually ends in an ein. The last two letters are a and ein, which is just impossible to pronounce if you're not an Air, a native Arabic speaker. But once in Jerusalem, Muhammad ascended to heaven, and this part of the journey, the second part of the journey, 
is called the Ascension, or in Arabic, Al Mirage. Like many Islamic stories, this is something that was pieced together from dozens of other stories, although some of the sources are actually pretty reliable. We have the early histories of Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Sa'd and al-Waqidi, and also some details from authoritative hadith collections, and even a few references in the Quran itself, one of which I mentioned earlier. So let me give you the quick skeleton of this story. In a single night, Muhammad goes from Mecca to Jerusalem, and then up to heaven. He sees many of God's previous prophets in the seven heavens, then comes back to earth, and then goes back to Mecca. So let's go to the beginning here. We'll start with Muhammad falling asleep near the Kaaba. He encounters some angels, and at some point Gabriel seems to take charge of the journey. But before Muhammad goes anywhere, much like a Muslim before prayer, Gabriel purifies Muhammad for the journey to come. Now, there is a Muslim legend about Muhammad that as a small child, he had his heart purified by Gabriel, like literally, you know, like a surgeon, Gabriel takes his heart out, purifies it with water from the well of Zamzam. And if you recall, the well of Zamzam is the place that Mecca the place in Mecca that miraculously saved Hagar and Ishmael all those years before. That water is there as, as a result of a miracle, so it's holy. And this water, this purifies Muhammad's heart to be a vessel of the divine message. Now, interestingly, Gabriel does it yet again in this legend, well, you know, before the night journey, almost like Muhammad's pure, but if he's going on this journey, he needs a whole new extra degree of cleanliness. This is from the Hadith collection of Sahih uh, al-Bukhari, Hadith 7517. So those angels did not talk to him until they carried him and placed him beside the well of Zamzam. From among them, Gabriel took charge of him. Gabriel cut open the part of his body between his throat and the middle of his chest and took out all the material out of his chest and abdomen, and then washed it with Zamzam water with his own hands till he cleansed the inside of his body. And then a gold tray containing a gold bowl full of belief and wisdom was brought in. And then Gabriel stuffed his chest and throat and blood vessels and everything. He stuffed it all in and then closed it. So here, Muhammad gets his second open heart surgery at the hands of Dr. Gabriel, and then he mounts a horse named Borak. Muhammad rides that horse at a very, very quick pace with Gabriel as an escort. I always imagine it more as a leap from end of horizon to end of horizon, almost like a series of gigantic leaps. Obviously, there has to be a magical element to this travel because to make this trip in a few minutes would just require impossible speed. It's the kind of speed that would just kill anything just from sheer wind resistance. Just to do a little fun math with that, let's say the journey took 10 minutes. Let's round off the distance between Mecca and Jerusalem to about 750 miles, or um, 1,200 kilometers for those of you, probably most of you who don't use the old English system. That means Barak would be traveling at about Mach 6. <laughs> 
six times the speed of sound. To put that in perspective, a commercial airliner travels around Mach 0.75 about, and a bullet is usually around Mach 1. You know, or maybe Mach 1 and a quarter to Mach 2 to 2.5, depending on the gun. Now, I'm not sure human skin would even stay on at Mach 6. So if we're talking about a physical journey, the long strides of Barack are quite literally a leap of faith. Of course, the ancient sources don't mention this. There's nothing related to how Muhammad could survive going that fast because they simply couldn't imagine wind resistance at that speed the way we can. So no one talks about Barack having a windshield or a pressurized bubble around the saddle. And really, why bother? It's actually kind of dumb in a way to even think about it. You know, the things I've been talking about for the last couple minutes. You know, why bother? Because if God can have magical horses who leap to the horizons in a single bound, who's to say he can't cancel wind resistance too? Anyway, Barack the horse makes it to Jerusalem. And by the way, if you've ever wondered why the Muslims considered Jerusalem to be a holy place with a link to Islam, where that came from, this is the reason, and really the only reason. Because when Muhammad died, the Muslims were nowhere near Jerusalem. Because aside from this, he never went there. So he's there. And Muhammad is greeted by a host of previous prophets. And the big prophets, the big ones like uh, Abraham and Moses and Jesus and all those guys. And Muhammad actually leads them in prayer. Muhammad is then presented with milk and wine and asked to choose. He chose the milk. You know, he was a Muslim after all. Uh, but Gabriel nonetheless was pleased with this choice. But he shouldn't have been surprised, really. Uh, and with that final test, you know, choosing milk over wine, seems a little obvious, but he passed the test. It was time for the ascension, the second part of the journey. Muhammad would be seeing heaven. So Muhammad remounts Barak, and then he ascended from the rock in the middle of the temple. Um, I'm not sure what is meant by the temple here. Perhaps the ruins of the second temple, or maybe in the mystical world, the temple is just always there, spiritually. Or just the more literal meaning of the word masjid, or mosque, which is a place where people prostrate before God. And regardless of what was there, everyone obviously just did that if Muhammad led them in prayer. There's no building actually required. But regardless of what was there at the time, this is a specific place. This is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. If you have ever wondered why that big gold thing in Jerusalem is called Dome of the Rock, this is the rock that's referring to. It is the rock where Muhammad began his journey to the seven heavens. And what are the seven heavens? Similar to Dante's Divine Comedy 700 years later, Muhammad moves up through the heavens until he reaches the absolute highest point, the place where God resides. And like in Dante's story, someone who's going to see heaven may also benefit from a glimpse of hell. Now, in the early versions of Muhammad's night journey, the earliest histories, Muhammad indeed does see hell. Although this is something that's missing from just about every common 
modern story about the night journey. Kind of like Jesus descending into hell, you know, in the uh, in the creed that Christians say at church every Sunday, this part of the story just, it kind of gets ignored. Most give it little thought. I don't know why it disappeared from the story of the night journey, but it eventually just disappeared. So if you want, feel free to ignore this next part and pick things back up when Muhammad reaches the first heaven. That's how the story is usually told. But Muhammad's glimpse of hell, as told in the early days, it's just too interesting to leave out. Now, according to this story, as Muhammad is about to go into the lowest heaven, he is greeted by a bunch of angels. Now, they are smiling. You know, they're angels, they're having a good time, and they're happy to meet Muhammad. Well, they are all happy except for one. Now, one angel is not smiling, and Muhammad wants to know why. So he asks Gabriel, or he may have actually asked the sad angel directly, depending on the source. He asked him why he isn't smiling. And the angel replies that, I would smile for you if I could smile for anyone, but I cannot. For I am Malik, the keeper of hell. So this angel never smiles because basically he has the worst job an angel could possibly have. His entire life is a witness to horrific suffering. Now, this seems like something most people would not want to see, but Muhammad asks if he can see hell, and Gabriel orders this angel to show Muhammad hell. So Malik, the angel, removes the cover of hell, and a flame shoots up into the air, and it soon began to fill the place where Muhammad was standing. So immediately, Muhammad asked the cover to be put back on. Gabriel orders it closed, and the flames disappeared. Now, in this scene, I always imagine Muhammad with an almost cartoonish face full of soot, you know, with Gabriel next to him with a smirk, as if Muhammad had just committed the same error that almost every newcomer to this place makes. Muhammad doesn't really see much of hell in this brief experience. You know, who could take much of that? But, you know, in this lesser-known story, it gives him another chance as he runs into Adam in the lowest heaven. And by another chance, I mean another chance to actually see hell. So Muhammad is going to the first heaven. Now, the person he's going to meet here is Adam. Adam is watching spirits pass before him, and he's praising some and disparaging others. Gabriel explains that this is Adam, the father of us all, reviewing his offspring. Then the story abruptly shifts to a scene reminiscent of Dante's Inferno, where you see specific punishments of specific types of wicked people. Now, this seems to be happening in the first heaven, and Adam's role in this is kind of ambiguous. So I don't know where exactly these visions are taking place. It's pretty confusing, really. But the scenes I'm about to describe seem an odd fit for the first heaven. So perhaps Muhammad's just seeing this through some kind of window to hell or something like that that's available in the first heaven. Again, this is pretty confusing. 
which might be why this part was also cut from the more common story of the night journey. This is like the director's cut of the night journey you're getting here. You know, this is a cool scene, but you really understand why it was left out. So in this place, wherever it is, Muhammad sees men with lips like camels, holding balls of fire that looked like stones. Now these people would throw the fire into their mouths and the flame would go straight out their backsides. Muhammad was told that these were the people who had devoured the wealth of orphans. And the poetic element of this is somewhat obvious. You know, they were consuming that which they should not have been consuming. So continuing, Muhammad then saw the family of Pharaoh. Now, this is presumably the Pharaoh who had opposed Moses and those who were like him. Apparently, these people had drunk so much water, it weighed them down and made their bellies as large as the humps of camels. And once immobile, they were unable to get out of the way of all these things that are flying at them. Now, these people were guilty of usury. Now, I don't have much of an explanation here for the link between the crime and the punishment here, but the next one makes a little more sense. He then saw men with both good, healthy meat and also rancid, diseased meat. So despite given the choice of these two, the men ate the bad, rancid meat. Now, these are men who go after women who are forbidden rather than the ones God has permitted. The metaphor here is pretty straightforward and obvious. If you eat rotten meat, you're a fool, particularly when there's plenty of good, healthy meat right next to you. You have your appetites. God knows this. But the lesson here is only to pursue what is clean, permissible, and good for your body and soul. Now, there's another predicament after this, but before I go to it, just let me warn you, you do not want children around for this one. Seriously. If you have kids around, just skip forward a minute or turn the volume down for a minute. Okay. Are all the children gone? Like, seriously, you do not want this visual in their heads. It will mess them up. All clear? Okay, I'm going. Here is the final vision. Muhammad then saw women hanging by their breasts. I'm not entirely sure what that means exactly. And if it's what I'm thinking, they'd have to be pretty well endowed just to make that work. That is, unless we're talking about meat hooks instead of a loop of rope like a noose. Regardless, it's a nasty situation. You know, these were those who had lied to their husbands and fathered the children of other men. And I think the focus on the breasts is meant to punish the body, you know, the specific body part, which suckled children that they had no right to conceive in the first place. So that's it for Muhammad's brief vision of hell, or whatever that was, or wherever that was, in the first heaven, or maybe not in the first heaven. The sins mentioned in this story, they might be random, or they may be a list of what Muhammad considered to be the worst of the worst. I really don't know. I can think of plenty of violent, horrible crimes that just aren't there. 
you know, Dante's Inferno, this is not. It's not that long. It's not that detailed. You know, perhaps it's just a small sampling of hell Muhammad is getting here, rather than Dante's long journey through hell and purgatory and heaven. And again, after all, Muhammad only had a single night here. And this is where we move back toward the traditional narrative, the things you're more likely to hear when you hear the sort of mainstream version of this story. And we resume with Muhammad in the first heaven with Adam. So in the first heaven, Muhammad meets Adam, the first man, the first prophet. Then in the second heaven were John the Baptist and Jesus. In the third heaven was Joseph. The fourth heaven had the prophet Idris, who is mentioned a few times in the Quran and is believed to be the biblical Enoch. Uh, Enoch was a patriarch in early Genesis before Noah. Then in the fifth heaven, Muhammad saw Aaron. In the sixth heaven, Moses. And then in the seventh heaven, Abraham. And beyond that, he goes to the uppermost boundary, which was the dwelling of God. And traditionally, the marker of this boundary, the uppermost boundary, is a lote tree. Now, I have never seen a lote tree. They don't grow anywhere near my part of the world. But it's also called a sitter tree, S-I-D-R. But they're small to medium-sized trees. They don't look all that different from a regular tree, or what I would consider to be a regular tree. I think the important part is that they tend to grow in deserty areas like southern Arabia. So at this tree, Muhammad sees the divine light. And this part actually made it into the Quran. This is the beginning of Surah 53. I'll read the Mustafa Khattab here. It just sounds clearer as a narrative. But I would also recommend reading the Pikthal translation on this. By the stars when they fade away, your fellow man is neither misguided nor astray, nor does he speak of his own whims. It is only a revelation sent down to him. He has been taught by one angel of mighty power and great perfection, who once rose to his true form while on the highest point above the horizon. Then he approached the prophet, coming so close that he was only two arms lengths away or even less. Then Allah revealed to his servant what he revealed through Gabriel. The prophet's heart did not doubt what he saw. How can you, O pagans, then dispute with him regarding what he saw? And he certainly saw that angel descend a second time at the lote tree of the most extreme limit in the seventh heaven, near which is the garden of eternal residence. While the lote tree was overwhelmed with heavenly splendors, the prophet's sight never wandered, nor did it overreach. He certainly saw some of the Lord's greatest signs. So those are the first 18 verses of Surah 83. Now, while all of this is going on, God prescribes 50 daily prayers for Muhammad's people. Then Muhammad goes back down, descending through the heavens, and he runs into Moses. And Moses says to him, uh, Hey, Muhammad, how many daily prayers did God just give your people? Muhammad told him 50. 
Moses flat out tells him his people can't handle that, and he urges Muhammad to go back and ask God for fewer prayers. So he does, and God takes off 10. And then he sees Moses again on his way down, and Moses says the same thing, and Muhammad goes back, and he gets another reduction. This process repeats itself a few times until the number is down to five. And at this point, Muhammad decides he just probably shouldn't push it anymore and just accept it. Now, this certainly would be a great story for the early Muslims who might complain about five prayers, because Muhammad could always come back and say, hey, you lazy Muslim, consider yourself lucky. It could be 50. You should thank me it's only five, you know. In fact, I got you 50 prayers for the price of five. So, hey, you're welcome. That couldn't hurt Muhammad's reputation as a merchant either. I'm not sure any other figure in history claimed to have actually bartered with God. And Muhammad negotiated a 90% discount there. So Muhammad comes back down to the rock in Jerusalem. And he leaves the holy city in the same way that he had come. And he gets back to Mecca while it's still dark. And so when he came to, you know, and he woke up, still processing the experience, Muhammad went to the house of Umm Ahmad. Uh, and this was the closest thing Muhammad had to a mother, this woman was. She was a freed slave who had served Muhammad's family for a long time. And although she believed him, she advised him not to tell anyone. It would just be too much for many people, she thought. And this is often an overlooked part of the story of the night journey. Looking at the person he came to after an experience like this. It's so fascinating that he would go to this woman, almost like a little boy, scared out of his sleep, seeking out his mother for comfort. Muhammad didn't go to Abu Bakr. He didn't go to Ali. He didn't go to Zaid. You know, Khadijah was dead, so that wasn't an option. Muhammad basically ran to his mother to talk about this indescribable experience. And there is really is something so profound about that, something so raw and instinctual. Now, maybe this is just a male thing, a man thing, but to me, a woman's voice in uncertain times, it gives such a primitive comfort, a gentle, soothing, caring, peaceful kind of cadence. It's a quality that a man simply cannot provide. And clearly, Muhammad sought that. But would Muhammad take her advice? Plenty of men are comforted by women all the time, but how many actually listen? And in this case, Muhammad did not listen. It was motherly advice, you know, which is advice that is mostly tailored to keep you safe, and it tends to be very risk-averse. But at this point in his ministry, Muhammad was no longer interested in public relations or what people thought of him. So he started telling people, and this resulted in ridicule, just as Umm Ayman said it would. And some Muslims lost faith because of this, for whatever reason. It was just too much of a leap of faith. But others, like Abu Bakr, they were strengthened by it. And it arguably had a purifying effect on the Muslims who were still left in Mecca. 
personally, I don't know why this was a bridge too far for anyone. Because if you believe someone is literally talking to God, and that this God will raise your body to eternal life, why is it so hard to believe that this same God could transport someone wherever in a short period of time? It's kind of like a Christian saying, yeah, I believe God so loved the world that he sent his only son and that Jesus was raised from the dead, but come on, God didn't really part the Red Sea for Moses. That's impossible. And interestingly enough, at least according to the Islamic story, Muhammad did provide some actual evidence of what had happened. As he went south on his return journey, Muhammad said he overtook several caravans. So he told people about these caravans and predicted when they would begin to arrive. He even told them the colors of the lead camels and the colors of the sacks loaded on those camels. And sure enough, all of this was true when these caravans came into Mecca. And that's usually the end of this part of the story. Because in the way the story is told, I've never seen a part where Muhammad or anyone else goes into a back and forth with those who believe Muhammad and those who don't. You know, there's really no dialogue at least when it comes to Muhammad's knowledge of the caravans. There is Abu Bakr saying that if Muhammad said this, it's true. But all the individual defenses come before the proof of the caravans and not after. And so this whole idea of Muhammad seeing these caravans just kind of goes poof. There's nothing about people saying, oh, no, you didn't, or this wasn't that, or why these people clearly saw this and didn't believe, the story just kind of leaves it hanging there. But obviously, that story is told for the benefit of believers to say that, hey, here's another clear proof that Muhammad obviously did this, and yet these people still won't believe it. This part of the story, it's just, it's told in such a straightforward way. As a it's a reinforcement of Muhammad's credibility, of course, but it never seems to include actual people who saw this proof and yet would not believe it, or people who believed because of it. Um, there's nothing like that, which is another strange hole in this story that is never addressed. If this clear proof was presented to all the Meccans, many of them clearly didn't believe it if the Muslims were run out of town anyway. So, wouldn't this be a great place in the story to talk about the unbelievers and what it was that made them deny what they had seen? It seems so ripe for a Quranic sermon. This kind of thing happens all the time, but we don't see anything about the hardened hearts or the willful blindness of the unbelievers. I find that to be a very odd choice from a storytelling perspective. It just, it is. So anyway... The bottom line here is some believed Muhammad and many others did not. So was it a dream? Was it real? The difference here really could be entirely semantic if you want to look at it that way. If Muhammad indeed was in the heavens, was he really physically there? 
And what does that mean? Are people actually physically there in heaven? Like we're physically here on earth? It totally depends on your perspective. Now, if the choice is between Muhammad's body going to Jerusalem and then to heaven, and Muhammad's spirit going to Jerusalem and then to heaven, is any one really more believable than the other? And to go even further with this, would Muhammad even know the difference? And is it a difference that matters? Does it matter at all? You know, particularly to someone conveying a spiritual message. You know, as Muhammad once said, my eyes sleep while my heart is awake. And just to reiterate, like I said before, the standard Muslim tradition is that this was a physical journey. Um, and I think that means a physical journey as we would understand it. You know, like you physically go from Chicago to Detroit. He went physically from Mecca to Jerusalem. Now, like the first revelation to Muhammad, or really any of them, the story of the night journey is part earthly history and part supernatural history, you know, even from the Islamic perspective. But this isn't just a theological story. Like the Muslim claim that the night journey was a real physical journey in this world to the next world, obviously, but in that same way, on this world, the night journey had real historical consequences. In the immediate term, the historical effects are pretty small, but in the long run, just think of how consequential this is to the world after Muhammad and to the world we live in now. This is the story that links Islam to Jerusalem. This is what makes Jerusalem contested holy territory, first between the Christians and the Muslims, and then, starting around the 20th century, between Jews and Muslims. How different would the Arab-Israeli conflict look without the night journey, without the Dome of the Rock? It can all be traced back to one night, one sleep phase, one God hour, one man's one vision of the one God. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Insha'Allah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.